and welcome to this new edition of Café Klingendaal, the podcast series of the Klingendaal Institute. My name is Brigitte Dekker, researcher at Klingendaal, and I am joined here today by an all-female panel. Uh, Maiko Okano-Heimans, my colleague from the Klingendaal Institute, and two researchers from Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik, Nadine Godehardt and Annegret Bendik. Welcome to you all. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Today we will talk about digital connectivity, a topic well known to a few people. So perhaps we can start with the Connectivity 101. Nadine, could you tell us a bit more about connectivity as a concept? Yeah, thanks, Brigitte. Uh, I think that uh, in recent years, connectivity has become a political buzzword. Uh, This clearly started uh, with the globalization of China's Belt and Road Initiative around 2015, when it developed from firstly more a neighborhood policy towards a global infrastructure project. Although the term connectivity was already used among Southeast Asian countries at the beginning of 2010, which then led to the master plan on ASEAN connectivity. A couple of years ago, Japan, with its partnership for quality infrastructure and lately also the European Union, also joined the connectivity club. But uh, these two countries, or this one country and the regional organization, rather in reaction to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. And this shows that we are already in midst of an ongoing competition of connectivity strategies but without really having a clear understanding of the term connectivity and how this term is linked to the changing nature of international order. And this is also true uh, for the classic understanding of connectivity that refers to the multiplicity of connections on a global scale, which is rather the um, status of being connected, describing physical infrastructure connections, uh, which also define the conceptual core of of globalization and mostly um, of, or most, or is a common denominator of of most of the globalization approaches. With COVID-19, the fragility of this type of connectivity of being connected became visible in an instant. I mean, if we think about governments implementing border controls, uh, all the travel and mobility restrictions, the lockdown in nearly every country, Uh, but also the interruption of global trade and supply change, which is basically the main idea of globalization. Uh, And now this, again, leads to an ongoing debate among academics, but also think tanks about what impact the COVID-19 pandemic might have on our globalization or even on our world order after this crisis. In my view, however, the pandemic, um, and more importantly, the political reactions to it uh, underpin the already established geopolitical significance of connectivity in world politics. So connectivity is in many ways not a new topic, uh, but the geopolitical implications of the various connectivity strategies, in particular the one by China, are recent developments. And in a nutshell, this means that how actors are connected, how actors and things are connected with each other, Uh, seems increasingly more relevant than the question whose sides governments are on or what kind of interests governments have. So the geopolitical purpose of connectivity practices or connectivity strategies uh, clearly um, differs this new understanding of connectivity from the classical understanding of connecting people or things or simple infrastructural connections. Yeah, and you are talking about uh, connectivity as the multi 
multiplicity of connections uh, on a global scale, of course. And I can imagine moving to digital connectivity now that especially in the digital domain, this fits perfectly in this concept. We are all connected through the internet and through the World Wide Web. Uh, so what does the increased attention on connectivity then mean for the digital connectivity? Well, I think it's quite obvious uh, for everyone that the digital adds another dimension to politics and uh, also adds another dimension to connectivity. Uh, still, the digital is also very different from, from previous conditions of connectedness of what I was talking about before, like if we talk about railways or motorways or infrastructure projects that are visible and also that you can touch, so to speak. Regarding the scale or the quality of, of, of digital connectivity, this is a very different story. It's more about an invisible connectivity, mostly, not all the time, but mostly relying even on invisible infrastructure. So furthermore, the critical speed of digital technology-induced innovation, digital disruption, uh, in a way constantly challenges existing understandings of power structures, of order, of sovereignty, even of nation nationality in a way. But this, and having said all this, is not what makes the digital necessarily relevant to geopolitics. It's relevant across all policy fields and it has an impact on po all policy fields. But it, at least from my point of view, it doesn't make it necessar necessarily relevant to geopolitics. The geopolitization of connectivity, however, does. So this means that digital places of exchange, like nodes, networks, infrastructure, also people and products, are increasingly becoming a strategic matter of geopolitics. Yeah, because talking about uh, COVID-19 uh, and the current situation, uh, Maike, in one of your articles, you refer to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic as the world's first digital pandemic. Uh, what do you mean by this? And how does it relate to digital connectivity then again? Yeah, thanks, Brigitte, and uh, happy to join this important debate. Perhaps before I comment on the, the COVID-19 as the world's uh, first digital pandemic, a few words on, on connectivity as such. Because Nadine, I think, is explaining sort of the, the state of being connected as what connectivity is. And that's definitely an important part of it. But what I think is important also to emphasize is that what to me EU connectivity is, is sort of connecting the dots also at home in a way that properly allows us to properly respond to the new world that we live in. In a world where politics and economics and security are more intertwined, uh, where China is increasingly uh, changing the rules of the game, obviously to its own interests and not always to our best interests, where also, well, there's more divergences in, in the clash of capitalisms, as I, uh, as I like to call it. So we see rather than globalization or the state of being connected leading to more connectivity as such uh, and more convergences, as, as Francis Fukuyama famously um, proclaimed many years ago, it's actually a state of divergence is increasing. And in that uh, new world, the EU has to respond also by being con better connected itself within the EU, also uh, trying to, to break through the divergences, internal divergences that we have, and connecting the dots between the, all the various DGs uh, or ministries, directorates general, that are in charge of all these 
elements of politics, economics, security, because we cannot consider them in, in, in separate spaces as we used to be able to do. So to me, EU connectivity is also that narrative of the EU having to get its own house in order to better respond to a world that we live in today. Then, on COVID-19 as the world's first digital pandemic, my main aim with introducing that concept of digital pandemic back in March was to focus attention and debate, and ultimately policymaking, on some long-term consequences of COVID-19. Because this pandemic has highlighted, uh, to my mind, uh, several trade-offs in the economic and security domains that come with globalization and digitization, and it's forcing us to rethink efficiency and resilience that came with or were sort of assumed to come with more globalization. And I think key words herein are national sovereignty and individual privacy in the digital age. So as such, the pandemic requires that we rethink resilience at home, both in the digital and economic spheres, and we have to reassess connectivity, including digital connectivity and supply change with specific parts of the world. And also, I, I think it should push us to step up our efforts to uphold and protect digital human rights, digital freedom of speech at home and abroad. Yes, and uh, even in the existence of the virus uh, or in the spread of the, the virus, you also see that the connectivity, uh, the global connectivity led to disconnectivity again, basically. Yes, indeed. So, which is, I think, why it's important to consider whether if there is a decoupling that might lead, might lead to what some people call deglobalization, does connectivity decrease in importance? I don't think so because of the, how I described EU connectivity. It's a state as of also responding to this new world. Uh, and if it's not global connections, then there will still be connections with specific regions, with specific countries, and less with other countries. So that's connectivity in a different way than all-out connectivity. It's not always the more the better, but we have to rethink more precisely when and where more better and when perhaps less uh, would be a little bit better. Yes, and maybe now moving one step further, um, in China, but also in Singapore, um or in Taiwan, apps have been used to fight a pandemic. Also in the Netherlands and perhaps also in Germany, the debate on voluntary applications has emerged uh, as we all try to tackle the virus. Uh, Anne Gret, in what way do you think the digital technologies, as Mike uh, touched upon already, uh, can be a tool for fighting the pandemic? For example, surveillance technology, both globally but also in Europe. So um, thank you for the invitation being part here of this important debate. Um, um, I think that um, in general, technology can be used in a positive and negative uh, way to deal with uh, this pandemic. And um, what we have seen nowadays is um, it is a matter of fact that COVID-19 um, has been threatening the European cohesion. And um, therefore, we see now this EU approach stepping up its fight against fake news and disinformation on the internet. This is why Brussels also now wants to encourage um, big internet companies like Twitter, Facebook, um, the Gaffers to report on fake news and disinformation once a month. And I think this is a very, very important and recent step the EU is now taking. And um, secondly, if you have a positive outlook on the use of technology, 
I think it's important that uh, we are now rebuilding trust and identifying joint solution, also technical solutions in the EU to be used to overcome the pandemic. So it is high on the agenda for the German presidency now to push for digital sovereignty, for digital European sovereignty, so that the EU is becoming a powerful player on the international stage. And um, I think that um, citizens in Europe would like to see, in the end, a European data space for health based on the general data protection regulation and uh, conform with specific ethical criteria for the application uh, when we are using the data uh, stored in a European cloud system. That is the vision, to have a third way and how to deal with technology. So this so-called multi-stakeholder process in policymaking in Europe is crucial and is a counterbalance to this multilateral cooperation when it comes to the use of technology. That is the reason why the European Data Protection Supervisor called for a EU very early in the beginning of April for the pan-European COVID-19 application. Then at that time, also telecom operators agreed to share this uh, aggregated mobile phone location data with the Commission to track the, com the spread of the virus in the European Union. So then this pan-European privacy preserving pro proximity tracing was presented, but it is uh, at the core of this multi-stakeholder process that then academics, scientists raised their hand very early, criticized central data storage in the European Union. This is important because it reflects the critical debate that is taking place in Europe. And at the same time, we have seen Poland as a newly more or less authoritarian government, which was the first EU country to launch a mobile application and required people to take selfies to prove that they are quarantining and personal data will be stored for six years. And that is not according to the GDPR. So you, you mentioned the pan-European COVID-19 app. Um, do you see countries uh, endorsing this idea or do you see more the, the decentralized approach taking off? I think that the decentralized approach will be um, the more accepted one in Europe. And I think the Polish way that is no way for Germany, for example. You need to have the trust in this uh, technology and collecting an individual movement in the context um, of a contact tracing app would create major security and privacy concerns in, in Germany, but I think also in the Netherlands and uh, in Western Europe. Um, so digital right defenders were rightly warning very early that collective massive volumes of citizens' data can lead to an increase in state digital surveillance power. So uh, would you say that, would be, that we would be trading privacy for security if we talk about digital health policies? That is also a very interesting debate because if you listen to um, executive representatives, uh, for example, like the EU's Fundamental Rights Agency and other politicians, they would argue, yes, we can have privacy and security at the same time. And it is not a zero-sum game. 
But I think the European Parliament is the right place where we have to discuss right balance between privacy and security when we apply this technology. And therefore, the European Commission was very early in stating that we need um, a common European basis for the application of of this uh, technology. And therefore, they were publishing this toolbox, uh, like um, publishing benchmarks for the use of the technology in, in the internal market. And I think in some, it states that this apps must be temporary, voluntary, transparent, and decentralized. That is very important. Right. I'm just going to move on because we are now already um, quite long in the podcast. Maaike, do you agree with Annegret, uh, her view on the digital tools? I certainly agree that people's trust is, uh, is needed. It's a requirement for the success of these uh, tracing and monitoring apps. Um, but also uh, because without this trust, it will be almost impossible to convince a substantial number of citizens to download and actually use these apps. Right. So if they're not built properly and in a way that creates people's trust, there will be no use to having them. That said, I think we should also take a step back in the debate on the use of digital tools to detect and monitor and in the future, hopefully also prevent academics from spreading fast um, and and as far as as COVID-19 did. And I would like to make two points here. Um, One is Okay, data privacy is obviously something to be protected. And we have to talk about privacy and security. There may be a trade-off. But actually, it's more complicated than that because there's also economics that should be featuring in this debate. So I would like to highlight that it seems to me surprising that now we in Europe um, put all our faith in, in basically two United States tech giants, Apple and Google, And citizens, uh, I wonder if they are aware of the long-term consequences of that next to their concerns on digital or data privacy. Because to me, it's a great pity that uh, just when the EU proposed this pan-European coordinated approach last April, it was those two tech giants that introduced their own solution with data remaining for the greatest part on users' devices. So that's the decentralized approach that Annegret was speaking on. But fast forward that, and we find ourselves now in a situation where in most EU member states that produce a tracing app uh, will need to use this shared platform offered by Apple and Google. And uh, we've, this is sort of an, another episode of the big tech companies winning from EU governments, um, several of which had actually intended to build their own solutions with more European standards and European technology. But obviously, these would have taken longer to build. And even then, they would have probably left much to be desired. So for that reason, US tech companies had European privacy advocates on their side which is another interesting sort of twist in if you consider that earlier these civil liberties organizations had actually confronted those US tech companies. So um, what you're saying is that we also have to look at the geopolitical side again of this, this applications uh, and how this also becomes again a, a great power play basically. Maybe Nadine, uh, how do you think that this digital pandemic, but also the digital tools to fight the pandemic, will change or impact the view on digital connectivity in world politics then? Yeah, I think this is a a really important uh, discussion that we now entered into because uh, as Annegret and also Maike 
uh, made it very clear that we have a very vivid debate within Europe uh, between democratic societies. But if we look uh, at this problem globally, it's kind of interesting that even before the, the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a big debate about the role of digital technologies and digital tools in authoritarian regimes. So we always made this distinction between how these digital tools are used in, in authoritarian countries and how they are maybe used in a better way in non-authoritarian countries. And this, of course, again, has a lot to do with China. It has to do with a growing mistrust towards China. And um, before the COVID-19 crisis, we all remember the debates about the social credit system, about the rise of digital control and surveillance in China. And I think now this pandemic made it quite clear that this trade-off between privacy, liberal rights and uh, security is also something that is on the agenda for democratic societies. And um, that not every decision that, are, that is made uh, in a democratic system is uh, necessarily actually a democratic one. So the example of Poland, I think, that Annegret mentioned is quite important in this case because the rise of authoritarian practices within democracies is something that is independent from the development in China, something that is quite challenging. In particular, with the COVID-19 crisis, I think, and the debate about uh, using apps, using digital tools to contain a virus or even to control uh, immigration within the borders of the European Union is something that makes this quite uh, obvious, I guess. So... I think for us also at uh, think tanks and maybe also including uh, academics, this means that we probably should um, focus much more about how these authoritarian practices by using digital tools, uh, what kind of impact these have on, uh, on our societies and also on our democratic uh, systems. Because um, if we only look uh, you know, at different political systems and we look at China and, uh, and maybe other authoritarian countries and how these countries use it, uh, then we might oversee um, the difficulty, and Annegret made this quite clear, to regulate and actually find regulations and benchmarks to control digital technologies, particular when we are dependent, as Michael said, from, from the United States, mainly, um, in democratic societies. Another debate that is now emerging is the debate on the development aid budget that will be cut although it is now more necessary than ever to fight the global pandemic, also in developing states. Looking at digital connectivity, I can imagine that digital tools can also be used in official development assistance. Uh, Maaike, could you maybe elaborate a bit more about this and also on the digital divide that is now more clear than ever? Well, whether COVID-19 will accelerate the digital divide, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it depends on the country and on the level of development of the country. Um, certainly, if there already have been differences, they, they would likely grow bigger. But I think the point is that they were already quite big. So we already had a big agenda even before this crisis hit. Um, and these, these countries are basically uh, facing similar uh, challenges on, on the developing an e-economy, developing digital literacy, digital competence, actually. And I think um, just as, as we need, we have an agenda here in our own country to, um, well, 
to address those those challenges. Those countries face these challenges also, probably even into a, in a more fundamental way than we do. So it is clear that support for digital infrastructure, digital competence, and the e-economy is vital for the development of these emerging economies and developing countries. And this, I think, should be reason for us um, here in Europe to focus on digital official development assistance, as I call it, digital ODA, as a cornerstone in our digital connectivity agenda, because it can help deliver inclusive and sustainable growth in those economies. And it's also in our best interests, because as we just heard, otherwise there will be an authoritarian advance in those other countries. So, of course, a focus on digital ODA uh, will be difficult since COVID-19 is focusing attention in the short and the medium term on the recovery within the EU, within all our member states. But we have to be aware that China continues its push into these countries in our neighborhood also. So the strategic challenge of digital developments cannot be pushed to the long term. And, and greater presence of European companies in the e-economy is also needed to push back on attempts to bring those authoritarian norms in the field of cybersecurity and internet governments in those regions neighboring Europe. All right. I think we have time for one last question, so maybe we can bring it back to the EU. And the EU just published a digital strategy in 2020. Um, Angret, do you think that this is a timely step forward considering the changes now happening uh, both on the European level, the geopolitical level, uh, or do you think this EU strategy is a little too late? It's never too late. It's good that um, digital integration is um, high on the agenda for the next months to go in the European Union. I think it's also important to deepen European integration in the health sector and to combine this. Having a European data health space is very important. Um, I think it's also important for um, the part of development and research, because um, if we would like to uh, generate and to push for a third way in, um, in the information and communication space or cyberspace, as it's called, then it's important that you um, can rely on big data that you can use data for your own purposes in, and in your own European interest. And therefore, um, I think it is absolutely important, also when we look at digital connectivity, that we will prepare ourselves in the European Union for a new uh, digital agenda that is also very much um, combined with a transatlantic agenda. Because I think it's important when we look um, into the future that uh, we are not neutral in the sense that we rely on democracy, human rights and the rule of law and we find our place here in the western part in this liberal order. And uh, I think this has to be strengthened and therefore we need a stronger, I call it, um, foreign policy of the internal market. It was two days ago that um, Borrell, the high representative of the CFSP in the EU, and um, Breton, the commissioner for the internal market, published a piece and pointing um, to the fact that Europe needs not only soft power, it also needs hard power. And I think this is also true for um, the digital part of it, 
we also need uh, the hard and the soft power when it comes to uh, the digital domain in the sense that um, we have to produce also hard power or and in in this case and therefore I think it's important to have this in this outlook for the presidency to look um, at the other part of the Atlantic. Listening to all of you today leaves me with many questions, but also with a feeling that states have to use connectivity to prevent disconnectivity, which is a rather interesting paradox. And on top of that, I also believe, listening to you, that the European Union has to create more connectivity between its policy domains, so between trade and foreign policy, and integrate its digital strategy. And hopefully, the German presidency will take on this huge quest. For now, a big thank you to our guest speakers, Annegret, Nadine and Maaike. It was a real pleasure to speak with you. And to all our listeners, stay tuned via our Klingendaal newsletter.